0: This is the voice of the Narrated Puritan podcast. John Hendricks of Monergism and a friend of mine, David Jonaskew, are doing a great job taking books from the text creation partnership online. Books that are in the public domain from early English books online that have been corrected and updated and they're taking it to the next step and really making a nice Kindle format book. And so I try to see everything that comes out, and there was a book called A Treatise of Faith by Ezekiel Culverwell. I read just enough of it to see what the subject is and how it is treated, but this was a little bit unique because of the two Puritans who wrote forewords to it, and that is Richard Sibbs and William Googe. So I knew that it had to have made some impact upon them. And so I want to read part of this, because I understand what he is saying here in comparing him to John Owen, especially how John Owen treats in his exposition of Psalm 130, verse 5. This book is called A Treatise of Faith that was first published in the year 1623. Ezekiel Culverwell lived from 1553 to 1630. A Treatise of Faith, wherein is declared how a man may live by faith and find relief in all of his necessities by Ezekiel Coverwell, applied especially to the benefit of the weakest Christians, to all of God's people who have benefited from my ministry, especially under my pastoral care. Dearly beloved in the Lord, although I cannot help but be aware of my many shortcomings in fulfilling my duties as required by God towards you, which I humbly implore the Lord and you to pardon, It has been, is, as I hope shall be, until the end of my days a source of comfort to me, that my labor among you has not been in vain. The fruit of my labors and the success thereof, I leave to the conscience of those of you who are still living, for you know that not a few are now resting with the Lord, and their holy lives and blessed endings bear witness to this fact. But to leave these manners for the consideration of those to whom they may concern, And to provide a just account of my efforts to all who read these words, I must confess that for many years, I have been deeply concerned about the fundamental aspect of faith. It is through faith alone that we receive all saving grace, and without it, none can be saved. Through lengthy experience and conversations with people of various backgrounds, I have discovered that very few truly grasp the knowledge or the proper application of faith either in obtaining assurance of salvation or in guiding their conduct, setting aside the professed Protestants who merely put on a facade of godliness, outwardly displaying it while denying its power by indulging in their own desires, I have observed that many, who genuinely seek salvation, often build their faith upon the weak foundation of abandoning their sins, This misguided approach prevents them from achieving the certainty of salvation or the constancy of a righteous life that true faith would provide. I have also seen others who, deeply aware of their wretchedness and the need for Christ's intervention, desire nothing more than to be delivered and restored by Him. However, lacking proper guidance on how to attain faith, the means by which they receive Christ and all of his blessings, they spend many unfruitful and unproductive years in their pursuit. There are also those who convince themselves that they possess faith, finding temporary relief from the fear of condemnation. Still, they lack the vitality and power of faith, fell to honor God in their profession, and finding themselves lacking peace and comfort when faced with trials, which a vibrant faith would undoubtedly provide. All of these observations underscore how few have truly, truly grasped the genuine essence of faith, what it is, how it is acquired and strengthened, and how to live by it. The realization of this distressing reality, witnessing so many people misinformed in such a crucial manner, has driven me to dedicate my thoughts to finding a solution. To address this grave issue, I began to delve deeper into how it could be rectified. I soon recognized that, since faith is grounded solely in God's truth, is revealed in His Word, the key to acquiring and nurturing faith lies in becoming well acquainted with His Word. In this endeavor, I cannot help but marvel at God's wisdom and love in providing an abundance of heavenly comforts to aid us in all our times of need. If only we had the knowledge and proper application of these comforts, we would then grasp the essence of living by faith and the blessed state of a believer in this world, surpassing all other conditions, however excellent they may be. With this realization, I committed myself to searching the scriptures to discover the heavenly comforts that God has so generously provided for our relief in times of need. This involved a significant amount of effort in gathering promises from both the Old and New Testaments, which, when compiled, formed a substantial treasure trove of heavenly blessings. Any person of understanding would be greatly moved and delighted upon merely reading them. However, I also recognize that merely listing these promises would not be sufficient to guide everyone in their correct use and application for the development of faith. Therefore, I endeavor to categorize them under various headings which, in my opinion, encompass all our needs. This way, even the weakest among us may more easily apply them to their specific circumstances, and through faith, find comfort when all other sources fail them. If in my efforts I have not fully met the expectations of the most discerning readers, I must console myself with the knowledge that I have strived to assist those in need to the best of my abilities according to the measure of grace I have received. I have diligently avoided engaging in controversies surrounding faith. Instead, I have presented the truth plainly as I have understood it from the Scriptures. In this regard, I can offer the defense that I have undertaken this work without guidance from others, as I have not seen anyone preceding me in this endeavor. I therefore beseech my esteemed colleagues in the ministry whose abilities far surpass mine to further develop this work. As for myself, I shall continue to pray that it may be as beneficial to others as it has been toilsome for me. May the Lord grant this for the sake of his Christ, Ezekiel Culverwell. The following chapter in this book are directions on how to apply God's promises to our particular occasions. For a better understanding and practice of the duty of the particular application of God's promises to our specific needs, so that we may live by faith, which is the primary focus of this treatise, we should carefully consider the nature and types of these promises which form the foundation of our faith. This will enable us to apply them more effectively to our various situations and needs. By God's promises, I mean in general, all those declarations of God's will found in His word in which He offers us any good thing to enjoy. Conversely, by His Threats. I mean those declarations of his will in which he warns of potential harm or consequences for sin. Both promises and threats are abundantly presented in the Holy Scriptures. Promises are meant to allure and draw us to believe and obey God's will, while threats are meant to deter us from sin. God communicates his will in two ways, absolutely and conditionally. Absolutely God declares what he will certainly do without regard to any opposing factors. For example, it is written, There shall be no more waters of a flood to destroy all flesh. Or, "It is time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. These are considered words of promise as confirmed by the apostle. Such promises include those concerning salvation made to the elect, which cannot be nullified by any means whatsoever. The other manner in which God reveals his will is not absolute, but conditional. In conditional promises, God declares what he will do if we fulfill our part. Otherwise, a promise is not valid. A proper understanding of conditional promises is essential, as misunderstanding them can distort the nature of the free and gracious promise of the gospel. It can also blur the distinction between the covenant of works where God promised life on the condition of complete obedience to the law, without which he did not covenant to grant life, and the covenant of grace. In the covenant of grace, God freely promised not only life, but also the grace to receive this life. For instance, in Jeremiah 31 verses 31 to 35 and Ezekiel 36 verse 24 and onwards, there is no requirement on our part. God himself makes those whom he pleases capable of receiving this grace. I'll explain how these are to be applied by us later on. Since many, if not most, of the free gracious promises of the gospel come with some condition, either explicitly stated or necessarily implied, we must carefully consider them. For example, in many promises a condition or required duty is explicitly expressed. As seen in John three verse fifteen, Whosoever believeth in Christ shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Secondly, in others, the duty required for attaining a thing promised is necessarily understood. For example, the Son of Man is come to save that which is lost, or behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world, and many others. In all these cases faith is necessarily implied is a means to obtain the promised benefit. However, in these instances faith is not a condition in the sense of moving God to promise life. It may be called a condition because a promise of life is made to individuals qualified by faith. Faith itself is part of the promised blessing, and no one can believe unless it is granted to them. Therefore, it is an impossible condition to be fulfilled by our own efforts. It should be noted that faith applies the fruit and benefited the promise to the believer who alone will enjoy the promised blessing. Faith does not restrict the offer of grace, which is extended generally to all who hear the gospel. People do not possess faith before hearing the promise and after hearing it. If they do not believe, they will be condemned for their unbelief, as stated in John 3 verse 18. Thus, in conditional promises, God freely offers mercy in any form requiring some obedience on our part to obtain it. First, we must believe, then obey, and finally, enjoy the promised blessing. Therefore, faith is not a condition to believe, but rather the condition to enjoy what is promised. For instance, if you forgive, you shall be forgiven. God freely offers forgiveness and requires that we, believing, show mercy to others, as illustrated in the parable found in Matthew 18, verse 32. Thus, the one who believes in receiving mercy is moved to show mercy, and those who do not show mercy do not receive it. Additionally, there is another consideration regarding God's promises, which involves the diverse quality of the things promised. Some promises are wholly necessary for our salvation, and are offered without restraint. These promises, such as faith and repentance, must be believed without hesitation. However, other things, although good in themselves, are not always necessary for our salvation. We may be saved without them, and in some cases it may be better to lack them than to possess them. Examples of such things include health, wealth, peace, and all earthly blessings, as well as many common spiritual gifts, or graces, at least in terms of the extent of those gifts. These are promised with limitations to the extent that they are good for us. Therefore, we should desire and believe in them only to that extent. Another important consideration regarding God's promises to aid in our proper application of them is that God proclaims in the gospel that a son, Christ, and all of his benefits are offered generally to every soul who hears the gospel. Thus, anyone who hears the gospel should believe, even if they cannot believe without special grace. Their unbelief becomes their sin and will lead to their condemnation for rejecting the offered mercy. Therefore, everyone who desires not to perish must believe in God's mercy as he offers it, and trust that God is able, willing, and faithful, to fulfill his promises. Believing in this way, they can enjoy the benefits that they would otherwise deprive themselves of. This is a warning so that people do not exclude themselves and bring upon themselves a just condemnation. As expressed in John 3 verse 18, he that believes not is condemned already. And in verse 19, this is a condemnation that light has come into the world and so on. There are also many specific promises made to specific individuals who perform certain duties, such as faith and trust in God, confession of sin, prayer, and obedience. For every duty, there is a corresponding reward, even if not always explicitly mentioned. While the prospect of a reward may motivate the heart to desire it, it cannot generate faith. Faith arises from believing in the truth of the promiser. And belief in receiving the desired reward motivates obedience. Therefore, when individuals hear about such rewards promise, they should be moved to believe and subsequently obey, as previously mentioned. These considerations will help guide those who are weaker in faith to apply and make proper use of all the promises in scripture that concern them. Now, because these promises are numerous, we must organize them in a clear and concise manner to prevent overwhelming the memories of those with weaker faculties, and to avoid confusing their understanding with numerous divisions, as is often observed. I cannot think of a simpler way to teach the complete use of our faith in every aspect of our lives and to elucidate the most essential manners in which we are most prone to doubt, fear. By identifying our ailments, we may more aptly apply the remedy. Examining the entire course of life, I observe six distinct occasions of doubt during which we require the most relief. Through faith. First and foremost, we often doubt whether we are in a state of grace, and therefore among those who will be saved by Christ. Secondly, we wonder how we will conquer our powerful corruptions and temptations. Thirdly, We seek guidance on how to obtain the grace to pray, hear the word, and perform all duties to God and man in faith in a manner that God will accept. Fourthly, we contemplate how to endure and benefit from all afflictions and persecutions. Fifthly, we consider how we will be provided for with all necessary things for this earthly life. Sixthly, we ponder how we will persevere until the end. All of these can be categorized into two main aspects. First, for our spiritual life, and second, for our physical life. If we were strengthened in faith to rely on God for all sufficient relief in both aspects, I see no reason why we wouldn't rejoice continually in the Lord. I'm confident that no other state in this life can compare to it. Let us, therefore, proceed to examine each of these concerns individually and see how we can derive strength of faith from God's word, providing comfort to our souls. This will better equip us to finish our spiritual journey in this life and give us greater assurance of our ultimate victory and glory through our Lord Jesus. To begin, we shall address a foremost manner which, as it comes first in order, is also paramount in importance being certain of our salvation through Christ. This includes our justification, by which we are made children of God. As we have already learned, all of this is found solely in Christ, and can only become ours through faith, not through any works of righteousness which we may perform. While we have discussed this matter to some extent in the previous part of this treatise, demonstrating how this faith is acquired, I believe it is worthwhile to gather a collection of promises from the scriptures as the Lord has provided us with numerous promises, especially in the New Testament where Christ previously concealed in types is more clearly revealed. My primary objective is to instruct weak believers on how they can daily nurture their faith through these promises, particularly during times of temptation. I hope that this effort to compile a selection of these promises and elucidate their proper use will not be in vain. To proceed with the practice of this first point, which involves coming to a daily certainty that we are reconciled to God and are his adopted children and heirs of salvation, we must remember that there are two types of certainty or assurance of God's favor. The first is a certainty to come through faith alone, and its sole foundation is God's word. The second is the certainty of the senses when we experience some spiritual feeling of God's favor manifested through his abundant graces bestowed upon us. These graces serve as signs and testimonies of his fatherly love. An illustration of this can be found in what Joab said to David, Today your servant knows that I have found grace in your sight, my lord, O king, and that the king has fulfilled the request of his servant. In this... We see that Joab was more assured of the king's favor because his request was granted. Both of these assurances are explicitly connected in the words of the Apostle John, and by this we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Signifying that a conscientious effort to keep God's commandments leads to the certain knowledge that we genuinely believe and possess the true assurance of faith in our salvation through Christ. The Lord provides various promises to strengthen us both of these assurances in all these promises we usually find two key elements first they reveal the excellent benefits and unfathomable riches brought to us by christ these benefits are presented to us at times in a general sense promising that he will save us and at other times more specifically assuring us that he will forgive and cleanse us. All of this is designed to lift our earthly minds and affections, causing us to hunger and thirst for them in a way that we can never be at rest until we somewhat enjoy them. Secondly, the promises specified the recipients of these blessings in the gospel proclamation. This allows every individual to apply them to themselves through faith and be assured that they belong to them Both of these aspects will be better elucidated in the specific promises. To begin with Christ and the benefits he brings, we may start with the first promise made to humanity which serves as a foundation for all others. After pronouncing his judgment against the serpent, the instruments of the devil in seducing mankind, the Lord declared, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Among many other things, the central message here is that Christ, the promised seed of the woman, would ultimately defeat Satan and his entire kingdom despite Satan's continuous harassment of the seed of the woman until he is completely defeated. The same concept is more explicitly explained in Hebrews 2 verse 14, where there it is revealed that Christ took on our nature so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This alone, if God had made no other promise, would be sufficient to convince every soul who hears it To not only desire and seek this deliverance through Christ, but also believe that they will enjoy it, since God has faithfully declared it. To further solidify the faith of God's people in this manner, the Lord repeatedly renewed the promise of sending Christ a promise seed throughout history. Immediately after the flood, Noah, through prophetic blessing upon his two sons, declared, May God extend the territory of Japheth. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem signifying that we Gentiles would be called to be united with the Jews in Christ. Similarly, this promise was reiterated to Abraham, who was told, In your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Acts 3 verse 25 The same promise was given to Isaac and Jacob, with Christ being the true seed in whom all families are blessed. This pattern continued in all subsequent generations with Moses and all the prophets in their respective times foretelling the coming of Christ. Is recorded in Acts 3 verse 24 and Acts 10 verse 43. Thus, it is unnecessary to list all the scriptures related to this topic. All this serves to strengthen the faith of all who will believe in God. Soon that the Lord nourished the faith of his church from Adam to Christ, with promises of salvation through Christ, the promised seed we may boldly rely on these promises. Moreover, under the gospel, we had the fulfillment of everything they foresaw in the former testament, which we now clearly behold as in a mirror, revealing the glory of the Lord. There are so many promises in the New Testament that portray Christ and its benefits, that merely listing them, and without further elaboration, would create a substantial volume likely longer than any of our idle professors would be willing to read. Therefore, I intend to categorize these promises and select key ones from each category to demonstrate how we can utilize the rest of the promises of the same kind. Now, all these promises related to the first point, aimed at strengthening our faith in the assurance of salvation through Christ, are presented either generally or more specifically, as before mentioned. Generally, In terms of the promised content, such as the assurance that Christ will save us, and generally applicable to all mankind as the recipients of these promises, most of the time, the content of the promise and its intended audience are intertwined. Therefore, to maintain brevity and avoid the need to repeatedly reference the same scriptures for various purposes, I will address these aspects together. Let us begin with the names attributed to our Redeemer. Jesus Christ. Throughout the New Testament, these names carry significant weight in confirming our faith. When the angel Gabriel was dispatched from God to the Virgin Mary, delivering the heavenly salutation, he declared that she would conceive in her womb and bring forth a son, instructing her to name him Jesus. The evangelist Matthew provides a reason for this naming, for he will save his people from their sins. This theme repeats itself frequently, is seen in phrases like, All flesh will see the salvation of God. When Christ encountered Zacchaeus, he proclaimed, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is the son of Abraham. He emphasized that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Christ himself asserted, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Furthermore, he stated, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Without believing this point further, Christ is frequently referred to as our Savior in the Scriptures. From these references, we should reason as follows. Since the eternal Son of God assumed human nature as Emmanuel, God with us, for the purpose of saving us when we were lost, and not to condemn the world, but to save it, we must unquestionably believe that salvation for us sinners is found in Jesus Christ alone. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Moreover, if we do not disregard this remarkable act of God sin and sin in the Son, in Christ's mission to the world, which was not to condemn us, but to save us when we were lost, we must accept his mercy with genuine faith. The same can be said of the name Christ, which signifies anointed, corresponding to the Hebrew word Messiah. Both names imply that the Son of God, in taking on our nature, was filled with the Holy Spirit far beyond other holy individuals. This is prophesied in Psalm 45, verse 7: "You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness; therefore God, your God." has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. The evangelist John explicitly confirms this. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. This truth was evident at Christ's baptism, where the Holy Spirit descended in the form of a dove and a voice from heaven declared, You, for my beloved Son, with you. I am well pleased. This anointing signified that, just as prophets, priests, and kings under the law were consecrated to the role through anointing with holy oil, Christ was consecrated for his mediatorial offices. These offices include, prophet, who reveals God's complete will for our salvation, high priest who offers himself as a full and sufficient sacrifice for the redemption of sinners and intercedes on our behalf. King, who governs and rules his people, subduing all his enemies. These aspects are comprehensively expounded in the Epistle to the Hebrews, which, due to its length, I encourage the Christian reader to study attentively for this purpose. Another compelling reason to believe... Can be derived from this. Since God the Father has anointed His Son in our human nature and called Him Christ, filling Him with the Holy Spirit without measure so that He could accomplish everything necessary for our salvation, we can confidently approach Him and firmly rely on Him for our salvation. Conversely, those who, upon hearing this, are not drawn to believe in Christ for their salvation either deny the truth of these facts thus making God a liar, or disregard their own salvation which has been prepared and offered to them. Such disregard will lead to their just condemnation. These two names, Jesus and Christ, which rightfully belong to our Savior, should sufficiently persuade a discerning person to place her trust in Christ for salvation. However, since the Lord knows how Difficult it can be to attain this assurance of salvation through faith in Christ. He has provided extensive information in a small volume in the New Testament regarding Christ and the benefits he has brought to us. This wealth of information is meant to encourage us to seek and embrace him as our Savior. Before delving into specifics, let us consider and marvel at the multitude of heavenly treasures offered to sinner through Christ. The first of these treasures is that Christ is sent to save sinners, a topic we have discussed in relation to the name Jesus, and hence we need not dwell on it further. The next treasure is Christ being referred to as a light to the Gentiles, a prophecy that Isaiah repeated many times, such as the people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light is dawned. This prophecy is applied to Christ by the evangelist Matthew, signifying that he brings the light of the gospel to a spiritually blind and ignorant people. The Apostle Paul also cites his prophecy as his warrant for preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. Similarly, Christ is often referred to as the light of the world, a title he claimed for himself when he declared, I am the light of the world. The evangelist John adds that Christ is the true light which gives light to everyone who comes into the world, indicating that he offers the light of the gospel to all nations, even though many remain spiritually blind and do not perceive this light. The theme of light encompasses various benefits brought by Christ, including the light of knowledge, the light of grace and holy living, and the light of eternal life and glory. These benefits are contained in the previously mentioned scriptures and several others. Scriptures portraying Christ as our life, such as John 6, verse 33, verse 51, John 10, verse 10, and John 14, verse 6, also fall under this category. From all of this, we should understand that since God has established His Son, Jesus Christ, through the ministry of the gospel, to enlighten and bring light to every person who hears it. Those who do not merely have the opportunity, but are also obligated to embrace this light through genuine faith. This way, they become children of the light, or else they risk condemnation. As our Savior himself declared, and this is a judgment, the light has come into the world and the people love darkness rather than light. Another compelling basis for our faith is the event at Christ's baptism. For God the Father sent his Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, descending upon him, accompanied by a voice from heaven declaring, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This proclamation signifies not only God's love and approval of his Son, with whom he could never be displeased, given his sinlessness, but more importantly, it indicates that while God was greatly offended by all of humanity, he was now fully appeased by Christ. For Christ's sake, God was ready to receive into his favor all those who would receive him through faith, accepting him as a representative in themselves and him. This corresponds to the statement that God has made us accepted in his beloved. Furthermore, it is said that Christ gave himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. This suggests that, while all of humanity has become odious to God due to sin, so that neither their persons nor their deeds are acceptable to him, those who lay hold of Christ by faith and apply a sacrifice to themselves will be accepted by God, and their obedience will be pleasing to him as it is covered by Christ's perfect obedience, which alone is a sufficient means by the operation of the Holy Ghost to draw anyone who hears and understands his to cast themselves wholly upon Christ and seek God's favor and all of its fruits only in this sacrifice of Christ. In addition to these, there are many other scriptures that generally describe Christ and its benefits to us. However, upon closer examination, it becomes evident that they are contained within these general categories. For example, when Christ compares himself to a vine, he teaches that just as a branch derives its entire life from the stock, we receive our entire life from him. He also refers to himself as the bread of life, and is described as the head of the body. He is said to be full of grace and truth. Moreover, passages like, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And I will give you the sure mercies of David. Encompass all the good things promised in Christ, who is the seed of David. In all these passages, among many others, the Holy Ghost's intention was to present us with a comprehensive view of all the good that Christ has brought to us. When we contemplate these blessings, we should be filled with wonder at God's immeasurable mercy, in providing so many and such great blessings in Christ for us, even though we were his enemies. This contemplation should lead us diligently to seek. To become partakers of these blessings by every possible means. This should suffice for our discussing some of the general promises in their youth in strengthening our faith. I would like to add one more thing regarding these general promises. If at any time in our moments of doubt and fear, especially during particular distress, we cannot readily recall a specific promise that would offer us comfort, we can safely turn to one of these general promises which encompasses all the specifics. We can apply such a promise to our current need. For instance, if a troubled soul is plagued by doubts about God's favor due to a heavy affliction or an unconquerable sin and cannot think of a specific promise to find comfort, they can confidently grasp one of these general promises and find solace in the following manner. O Lord, you have said in your holy word, which is a word of truth, that the Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. Lord, I am lost and see nothing in myself to help me. Therefore, I wholly rest upon Christ and look for help only through him. The same approach can be applied to all the general promises, each of which contains ample material to support us in all of our fears, provided we can aptly apply them. In conclusion, I want to emphasize to anyone desiring to believe in God, And live by their faith, above all to deny themselves and not seek any reason within themselves to believe. This has been observed as a significant obstacle to true belief. Instead, direct all your thoughts towards God. First, consider how merciful He is to provide such help for poor sinners in Christ and freely offer it to them in His Word. Secondly, reflect on how faithful He is to fulfil all that He has promised. By doing this, the poor sinner may be moved to believe in God, trusting that he will surely provide succor and comfort in due season and measure. A Treatise of Faith, Ezekiel Culverwell, 1623